I want to welcome us all uh, to the service this morning um, and start off by just declaring God's love for you. God loves you, and he welcomes you uh, to his, his worship service this morning. Uh, and as the creator of all things, he loves you so much uh, that he wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to have fellowship with you. He wants uh, to be known by you and, and to know uh, you to experience his knowledge of you. And so the question for us as we start today is, will you hear his invitation and respond? Uh, our, our text today is John 2, 1 through 11. Um, and in this passage, we'll explore the meaning of this sign, the, the turning of the water into wine, that inaugurates Jesus's public ministry. We'll see what this sign means for us and fix our eyes upon Jesus who performs it not only for his disciples, but for us as well to, to hear and see and to believe in his name. And so if, if you are able, would you please stand for me, uh, with me for the reading of God's word. Our text is John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out, his mother, uh, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and they said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and, then people, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and let's pray. Lord, uh, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that uh, you have recorded in it uh, enough for us to be able to know you and to understand you and to believe in the message of Jesus. And this is one such example of your, of your word, uh, that the direct result of being a part of this sign was the belief of the disciples of Jesus. And so as we, as we approach this text today, open our eyes like their eyes were opened to who Jesus is and to what Jesus does, and that we would believe in his name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we deal with the first of Jesus' signs, the beginning of his public ministry in Israel. And as we do so, I think it's going to be helpful for us to maybe take a step back and, and to see sort of at a high level uh, what John means when he calls Jesus' work at the wedding feast in Cana a sign. We see that in, in verse 11. This is the first or the beginning of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
Uh, the uh, commentator who is helpful to me, his name's Leon Morris. Uh, in his commentary uh, on John, he, he points out three things that help, help me kind of put them into words for myself. So I'm, I'm following Leon uh, Morris here. The, the first, what, is, what does John mean when he uses the word sign? What, what's he trying to indicate to us? The, the first thing uh, I think we should recognize is that signs are designed to communicate a meaning beyond the sign itself. So that they have a meaning that goes beyond the thing that's done. So th- this is inherent in the definition of the word. Signs signify, they indicate, they make known information. A sign has meaning that doesn't terminate with the sign, but, but goes beyond it and seeks to communicate truth to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. So as we approach our text, we'll be asking, what does Jesus' sign of turning water into wine at the marriage feast mean? What truth does it communicate to us? Uh, the, the second thing that we should think about signs is signs demonstrate the prophet has come from God and point men to the message of God. We see this positively in, uh, from Nicodemus in John 3. So uh, John 3, 2, this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We see it negatively from the Pharisees and how some of them respond to the sign uh, that Jesus does on the, the man born blind in John 9. So John 9, 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So, so what Jesus had done, it's the Sabbath day, he makes mud, puts it on the guy's eyes, and then he tells him to go wash, and he washes, and he's healed. So Jesus made mud, and he healed somebody on the Sabbath, which they thought was work. Uh, but, but others said, continuing, uh, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. So the sign, the, the healing of the man born blind was like, maybe, maybe he's not a sinner. Later, as the Pharisees interrogate the man born blind in, in John 9, um, they, they say this to him. They say in verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So it's, it's clear that the signs uh, in John, they, they point to Jesus as the man coming from God. In John, it is especially the wonderful and miraculous nature of the signs that demonstrate that he comes from God, that he's, he's God's emissary, he's God's prophet. Uh, he's God's man who is speaking God's message to the people of God. And it is because he comes from God, it is so important that we attend to the meaning of his signs and understand their message. Because it is God himself who is speaking to us in them. So as we approach our text and unpack the meaning of this sign, we should take care to attend to the voice of God and ask, What is my creator speaking to me personally 
in this sign this morning? What is, how does he want me to respond to his voice? The, the third and final thing is that signs produce faith. We see that in, in John 20, 30 through 31, the, the purpose verse of John's gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you have life in his name. So to summarize, signs have a meaning which extends past the sign itself. The sign's meaning is from God, and it comes to us personally and specifically. So we should heed uh, the, the command of Luke 8.18, uh, take care then how you hear, how you hear the sign. And then the third is that the sign, along with the meaning uh, that goes beyond the sign, produces faith in those who take care how they hear. So as we come to our text today, the meaning of the sign at the wedding of Cana, its, it's purpose, its meaning, what, what God intends for us to know as a result of this sign, this symbol uh, of, of his work in creation, what does it mean that's what we're going to be focusing on. And so what is the meaning of the sign? My, my whole argument this morning is that the fundamental meaning of the sign is that Jesus is cutting a new covenant with the people of God. And so that's the, the title of the, the sermon, Jesus, uh, Jesus and the new, Co- new a better covenant, right? Jesus creates a new and better covenant. There are There are two uh, bodies of evidence that I'm going to bring to the table today. Um, One is about the place, which is the time, right? The event, the person's present uh, at the event, and then the provision. The way that Jesus turns the water into the wine and and the manner of his miracle. So we'll have place and we'll have provision, and those will be the two sort of... um, guide rails in which we're going to be talking about what's going on in, in John 2, 1 through 11. So in, in terms of place, there are four details, um, four details in the place that I think show the meaning of the sign that Jesus is cutting or he's creating a new covenant with the people of God. These four details also give us clues to the character of this new covenant that I believe the Spirit intends for us to draw from this sign, which has been written for us that we might believe. So the first comes to us in in 2.1, on the third day. So that's our our first detail, on the third day. The the context for the third day begins all the way back in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Pastor Chris, he pointed out a few weeks ago that this is clearly evoking the opening of Genesis 1, which reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 here for a second. Genesis 1, after saying in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it then continues by describing the, the work of creation as a symbolic week of time where God creates in the first six days, and then ends with a seventh of holy, eternal rest as king over his creation. The creator has formed the universe, and he has filled it. And special among his creation is man, who, it is written, is created in his own image, in Genesis 1, 27. 
Genesis 2 then continues by, it zooms in on the creation of man and, and demonstrates the relationship God entered into with those created in his image. It, it tells us how God formed man out of the dust and he breathed his breath of life into man. He then takes man and he, he places him in a holy garden temple mountain where he spoke with and walked with man. In this Eden, he also placed two symbols. He placed two trees of his covenant with man. One tree spoke to man of the eternal rest God was offering him. This is the tree of, of life. And this tree spoke of the, the promise of life if you were to keep covenant with our creator through a trial of judgment. And this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So uh, to, to summarize here, the beginning of Genesis 1 through 2 speaks to us through its symbol of a seven-day period about the relationship between creator Yahweh and his covenant people and his offer of eternal rest and eternal life to those who keep his covenant. And I think John, in these opening sections, uh, is doing the same thing that Moses did in Genesis 1 and 2. He is introducing us to the creator and then showing us what sort of covenant he has created with his people. I think this because in addition to in the beginning of Genesis 1-1, we also see a week's worth of time leading up to our sign in Cana. After establishing Jesus as the creator who dwells among his people in the prologue in 1-1 through 1-18, we then see a narration of a span of seven days like we do in Genesis. So, if you got your Bibles, flip back to John 1.19, the, the beginning after the, the prologue. Um, priests and Levites, they arrive uh, from the Jews to ask John the Baptist, who are you? Um, this is like a who song, right? Who are you? Uh, all right. Um, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? This is day one. Right? This is day one of Jesus' week. Day two comes to us in uh, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Then uh, you have a day three in, in verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And if, if the, the first time that I went through this, I was counting like a Gentile. And so I jumped to verse 43, which says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Right, so we have four days. Um, and then we would arrive uh, to 2-1 and on the third day. So uh, you have four plus three. You do math for a living. That's seven, right? Seven. But I was, I was, um, I was counting like a, a Gentile, um, not like a Jew. So when a Jew says on the third day, what they really mean is two days from today. So if you're on Friday and they're saying on the third day, what day is that? It's Sunday, right? That's, it's Sunday on a Friday. So there's actually a fourth day that I missed because I was reading like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So if you look at verse 39, it says, he said to them, come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that 
day, for it was about the 10th hour. So this is the idea that uh, the 10th hour is kind of late in the day. So if you're going to somebody's home, that means you're going to be spending the night with them. And then when you wake up, you'd be spending the, the day. So that would be the fourth day. So we've got the, the initial day that the Jews showed up to John, the next day, the next day, the night with uh, Jesus, the next day. So you got five days. And then when you count the third day, you would end up on seven. So Sunday. Um, so five plus two is seven. And seven days is a whole week. Um, so what John has, John has shown us in, in these uh, first two chapters is that this, there's an inaugural week at the beginning of his gospel. And he has this here. He's recorded it this way. And, and these events really happened. And he's reflecting on them um, and thinking about what they mean. And so he, he writes them this way because he wants to teach us that creator Jesus is creating a relationship with his covenant people. And he offers them eternal rest and eternal life to all those in his covenant community. So the place of the beginning of the sign on the seventh day of the first week is to show us that Jesus is creating a new covenant with his people and inviting them into eternal rest and eternal life with him. This idea of invitation to eternal life, eternal rest, uh, is confirmed by the sign taking place during a wedding feast. This is the second witness, uh, so to say, that this is true. Uh, John 2.1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Weddings are wonderful celebrations. Uh, they, they, they show two people coming together in, in covenant union, um, and their two lives become one. They become shared together, and the whole community comes to, to celebrate that union. A wedding is a time of feasting and rejoicing. What's, what's important, uh, as, as we read the writings of John, he only mentions weddings twice in his whole corpus, uh, his whole body of work. Uh, it is here at the wedding feast of Cana, and the second and only other place is in Revelation 9, 6 through 9. It reads, And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage or the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage or wedding supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. John was also surely familiar with Jesus' parable we have recorded in Matthew 22 when, when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So the place of the beginning of the signs at a wedding feast is also to show that Jesus is creating a new covenant with his people. And he is inviting them into the celebration of eternal rest and of eternal life with him. But there is more meaning to the place of the sign, the time of the sign. The Spirit is also indicating to us the manner in which 
this new creation will be cut between God and man. And he's showing us that the work will accomplish, uh, he's showing us the nature of the work that will accomplish our participation in eternal rest and eternal life uh, with Jesus in this new covenant. So we return again to on the third day from 2-1. These words, in addition to, to filling out our creation week, these words also are foreshadowing of the death that Jesus is to die on the cross and the resurrection that will follow on the third day. So explore this, this timeline with me. Um, this is familiar likely for many of us. Uh, in John 19.18, Jesus is, is crucified. Then in John 19.30, he cries out, it is finished and gives up his spirit. The Lamb of God has been slain. John 19.31 describes the day of the week uh, that this happens on. Since uh, John 19.31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and then that might be taken away. So the day before Saturday is Friday. So Friday is a death uh, the day that, Je- that Jesus' death occurs, uh, the day before the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And the resurrection occurs on Sunday. So as we all know, because we are here, right? We're all here celebrating the Lord's Day, the day that he rose from the dead. And so on, on uh, Sunday, uh, in Lu- uh, John 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, meaning Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. As for yet, they, ha- they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So on the, on the third day, then is also a reference forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here in John 1, 19 through 2, 11, the inaugural week of Jesus' ministry has a silent sixth day. So too, our Jesus will have a day of silence in the tomb before rising victorious as a lion-like lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The new covenant that Jesus is forming with his people is no longer the covenant of the first creation, but it is, a fir- it is the first covenant transformed into something new by his life, death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. The offer of the covenant is the same. It's eternal life. It's eternal rest for God's people in God's presence. But the way the covenant is fulfilled for you 
and for me is transformed by Jesus. The transforming power of Jesus' death is in view, it's, it's testified again, so there's two witnesses again for this, uh, by the presence of the mother of Jesus at the wedding feast. We see that in 2.1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Of the eight times that the God-bearer is referred to in the Gospel of John, four of them happen here in Cana, in verses 1, 3, 4, and then again in 12. The other four times Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned are at the crucifixion of Jesus at Golgotha. That's in John 19, 25, 26, it happens twice, and then in verse 27. So back to, to John 2. Jesus also, verse 2, uh, was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So both here and at Cana and again at Golgotha, Jesus addresses his mother as woman. To our ears, this might sound disrespectful. I would never let my children call their mother woman. Um, But in the context of his changed relationship with his family because of his public ministry as Messiah and the convention of his day, there is no hint of disrespect or dishonor to the woman who conceived me or conceived him. Um, In fact, uh, somebody mentioned this afterwards, and I thought it was a a really good idea. Um, It it also could be a reference back to Eve in in Genesis chapter 3, where uh, she, uh, by calling her her woman, he is is indicating that she is the fulfillment of Eve, the mother of all the living, and that in Jesus, that promise is true, uh, that Jesus will make us the living. And Jesus, uh, in responding to his, his mother, he brings up this bit about his hour not yet coming. We see it in 4b, my hour has not yet come. This phrase appears in 730. It appears in 820. When threats uh, to arrest or kill Jesus are present, people are trying to get to Jesus, but they fail because the time of his death was not yet. And then, uh, as it is time, as the time approaches for Jesus to die, he says in John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So with Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come, he is verbally tying this sign at Cana with his crucifixion and death. So the presence of his mother and his mention of his hour, they're the textual clues or the evidence that the meaning of the first sign is tied especially to the meaning of the crucifixion. The world is forever changed, not only by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but also and especially by what he accomplished by his death on the cross. 
Now, uh, we're, we're moving into sort of the second pillar here of the, the provision. And, and it is, in fact, that Jesus' death on a cross, his becoming the lion-like lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that occupies John's focus on the provision of Jesus at the wedding feast at Cana. So the wine uh, is a sign linked to the blood of the lamb. We, we know that from, from places like Luke 22, 20, where it says, this cup uh, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The wine of the sign at Cana is intricately tied to the reality of the blood shed by Jesus at the crucifixion. And just as we had four ways to place the uh, the ways the place of the sign provided meaning to the sign, there are four ways that the provision at the marriage feast at Cana describes the type of covenant Jesus is cutting with his people. The first way is through the water of purification. So Jesus used pots used by Jews for purification. We see that in 2.6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So what, I, what I think the Spirit is indicating, uh, the sign to mean here, is that uh, the purification found in the law is insufficient to enter into the eternal rest, the eternal life of God. You can't work your way into that rest. And no amount of washing with water can cleanse you from the stains of sin. You need to be cleansed, but only one source of cleansing will do. And that's the blood of Jesus. You need something. You need someone greater to cleanse you than mere water from a pot. This is essentially the claim of John the Baptist uh, as well. If you see John 1, 26 through 27 John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So again, John 1, 29 and following, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. One greater than John, Jesus, will take away the sin of the world, by washing us not only with water, but also with his Holy Spirit. So Jesus, and as he uses the urns used for the ritual washing of God's covenant people, he is communicating to us that his blood, signified as wine, is the source of our true and lasting cleansing. That this sign occurred at a wedding shows us that our entrance into the eternal rest, the eternal life, of Jesus' covenant is made through the cleansing power of his blood. Just as the wedding attendants used the pots to enter the celebration, right? They, they, they would walk, they'd go to the wedding feast, they'd wash their hands. Uh, somebody would, you know, get the water, pour it on their hands, and they'd, they'd wash them out. Um, so too, the blood of Jesus is our cleansing. 
And, and just as these, these pots, after they cleanse you, they then become filled with what you use to celebrate the feast, right? This wine that they're using to celebrate the feast. So too, Jesus is our cleansing and our drink of our rejoicing. It grants us entrance into the wedding and it satisfies us there. By turning water into wine in the jars for purification, Jesus takes the need for cleansing we find in the law and transforms and fulfills it. The blood of the Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world and make us ready participants in the marriage supper of the Lamb. The next sort of bit of, of meaning that we see is uh, in the way that provi- the provision of Jesus made uh, fit a need impossible to be satisfied any other way. It, w- it was indeed a true miracle. According uh, to, to Morris, gentlemen, I, I mentioned earlier, Jewish weddings at this time were, re- were a reciprocal affair where guests and hosts had certain legal obligations to each other. So if a guest shows up and doesn't bring an appropriate gift to your wedding, you take them to court and force them to get you a good gift. If, if you as a host fail in your provision for your people who come, they will take you to court right, and get what is required of the event. So both guests and hosts could be taken to court if they failed in their duties, which range from providing a proper gift to the couple to supplying sufficient feast for the guests. Now, it is clear from our text that the married couple is faltering in their duties of provision. See that in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So either through failure in planning or poverty, the couple was failing in their obligations to their guests. Mary simply brings this to the attention of her son, and, and Jesus responded with a reference to his crucifixion. As I, as I tried to show before. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It would appear that Mary already believes in Jesus, that he is the Messiah who will save his people from their sins because she hears him speak of his hour and instructs servants to obey his voice. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So the meaning of the provision of Jesus and the new covenant he cuts with his people is therefore one where he supplies the need of those about to be disgraced, which is you and me. Paul, thinking about how Jesus' death and resurrection fits our needs, he, he writes this in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is a a resurrection um, theme. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, that's the ascension, and seated us with him in the heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus. If it wasn't for the provision of Jesus, we'd all fail in our obligation to God and to each other, and we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. We'd still be children of wrath. But Romans 5, 6 says this. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Through the sign, meeting the need uh, for the wedding, Jesus is showing us that his death will meet our needs and supply all of our lack. The, the next way that his provision uh, another important aspect of how his provision transforms the water into wine is that it's sufficient for all. It's sufficient for all. We see this in 2, 6 and following. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So I, I do some math for a living, so I did some math. Uh, if you have six jars with 20 or 30 gallons in them, that means you have anywhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water. Uh, if they're filled to the brim, they get transformed into wine. That would be the approximate equivalent of 600 to 900 bottles of wine, which is a lot of wine. If we're using modern standards for serving... This would turn six jars of wine into 3,000 to 4,500 servings of wine. That is a lot of wine. Um, we don't know the full size of the wedding party at Cana, but it seems reasonable to assume that the provision of wine in the jars used to wash guests' hands, right? If you turn on the tap, you wash your hands, right? I think they, they did it a certain number of times. Uh, so a, a, a a decent amount of water was used for each person who had to, had to clean, clean their hands. Um, that would be more than enough, more than sufficient to serve them wine and to have some left over. Therefore, Jesus' provision in this case is sufficient to serve the whole wedding. Everyone who's there, it, it's sufficient for. The meaning we are to glean from this is that the blood of Jesus is a sufficient propitiation. It's a sufficient atonement. It's a sufficient cleansing for our sins and the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2.2 puts it this way. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So not only does Jesus' uh, cleansing blood fit our need, it is also a sufficient supply for all of our needs in our covenant relationship with God. And, and they apply to all who want to be in covenant with him. So how, how can you take this truth that Jesus is sufficient for you? How can you take this truth and, and apply it to your heart, to your life, to the way you live, to the way you think, to the way that you act? This truth should make us bold. should make us bold. Uh, first, bold to approach Jesus for his supply of grace in our times of need. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can be bold to come to Jesus for grace. 
because his provision is more than enough to cover our sins. When, when we sin, we should have confidence that Jesus, sitting on his throne literally of grace, will not falter in the power of his cleansing blood. As we approach, we will be made clean by the blood of the Lamb. So that's one way it should make us bold. It should be bold to come to Jesus with all of our faults, all of our failings, and to be cleansed uh, from them by him. The truth also should make us bold in how we face out toward each other. So Romans uh, 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. So if God welcomes you with so much grace and so much mercy as we approach his throne of grace, let us be bold to welcome each other in the same way. Let us be bold to bear with each other as, as we fall into sins. Let us be bold to love on each other and to care for each other as life becomes hard and difficult and we are weighed down with life. Let us be bold in how we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Finally, we learn from Jesus' provision of the wine that his covenant is better than the first. So we see that in 2, 8 and following. And he said to them, Now draw, out, uh, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, this phrasing should show us that the covenant cut by Jesus is better than the first now it's, it's important to note that it's not better uh, because of any issue with God who, who made that first covenant of creation with us. It's not better because God failed in any way. It is better because it makes a way for us despite our weaknesses. That despite our weaknesses, we can enter into this covenant with Jesus. Romans 8, 1 through 4 puts it this way. Therefore, there is therefore Sorry, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by our flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. His second covenant created by Jesus is better because your perfect obedience is no longer the requirement of faithful participation in the covenant. The wine that Jesus supplies is better than the first because his life becomes our life. His obedience becomes our obedience. His covenant faithfulness becomes our covenant faithfulness. The sign at Cana teaches us that the covenant of Jesus is better because he is the one who cleanses us. 
He is the one who supplies our need. And he is the one who accomplishes, accomplishes in us what we could not accomplish on our own. So the, the sign ends in verse 11 with this. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the sign at Cana. We thank you for what it teaches us about uh, Jesus and his covenant. We thank you that his supply is more than enough for all of our needs. We thank you that through this miraculous turning of the waters of purification that he, he uh, signifies to us that his blood will purify us from all of our sins. And that they drank from these pots later, that it signifies to us that Jesus is not only our entrance into his kingdom, but also the source and supply that sustains us there. God, we are so grateful that you have given us this word, that this text. We need to know about Jesus. We need to know about his love for us. We need to know about his grace and how at the right time he came to save sinners. So Lord, help us with our hearts to latch on to Jesus through faith. Help us to cry out to him uh, uh, to be saved. Help us to to sing out to him uh, our praises in response to his saving of us. Help us to be full of gratitude and in full of gratitude to obey his voice for the way that he supplies and sustains our lives. Lord, be honored as, as we continue to worship you today. Magnify your name in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.